You know, this morning we looked at Isaiah in chapter 1, and I told you that this book, Isaiah, was really called the, the fifth gospel by the early Christians. But that wasn't just the first generation of Christians in the Apostles' day who were proclaiming the gospel among the nations before the entirety of the New Testament canon had been written. It continued to have that reputation in the founding of the church for centuries. So let me show you a quote from the fourth century, a church father called Jerome. Well, somewhere in here. There it is. Jerome writes in the fourth century, he should be called an evangelist, that is Isaiah, rather than a prophet, because he describes all the mysteries of Christ and the church so clearly that you would think he is composing a history of what has already happened rather than prophesying of what is to come. That's in Jerome's prologue to the translation of Isaiah, of course, Jerome being the translator of the Latin Vulgate. Isaiah is that kind of a book. It is a grand panoramic view of world history. It's a church-founding kind of a book. But it's a really, really long book. And we live in 2018 in Instagram world, and we struggle with long books. I confess that I've only a few times in my life actually sat down and read Isaiah cover to cover. That's an incredible and good experience. But that's not the typical way that we process information. In fact, there was a, an article in The Atlantic um, titled, I think it was titled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? In which the author was bemoaning his realization that he no longer was able to engage in sustained reading and contemplation like he felt like he was able to at the beginning of his career. And he attributed this largely to the changing media that he was using and the way that he accrued information for his profession. Uh, there's a quote in his article that I just think is really... Um, portrays this reality quite well. He says this, that the media are not just passive channels of information. They supply the stuff of thought, yes, but they also shape the process of thought. That is, the, the media that we use to obtain information not only just give us information, but even shape the way that we think about it. He says, what the net seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. My mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in swiftly moving streams of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet stream, a guy on a jet ski. And this article is 10 years old. It's from when I was an undergrad and smartphones were far less common, social media was just beginning to blossom. There was a series of articles in the New York Times just a couple weeks ago that basically said those who work in Silicon Valley are now prohibiting their children access to smart technology because they understand what it does to us. This is one of the byproducts. And, and this is not a, a, uh, a glum, oh, the world is ending because of technology kind of a talk. Uh, technology, of course, comes with incredible advantages and also some disadvantages. And the advantages that technology has brought us for the advance of the gospel are wonderful. And we should avail ourselves of all of them. But this is a lamentable loss that we seem to be losing the capacity to sustain our attention on the Word of God and then foster deep contemplation and reflection upon God's Word. That's, that's a necessary task in the maturation of a Christian, is to sustain our contemplation, reflection on our meditation on the Word of God. But you know, that's really not the main thing I want to address tonight. One of the things I want to address tonight is another kind of sustained focus that the Scripture calls us to as Christians. 
Peter says this in 1 Peter in chapter 1 when he says, in view of the coming of Christ, we're to gird up the loins of our mind. That is, as Christians, we're called to live our entire life with a sustained focus on one great goal, the eternal glory of God and the advance of his kingdom. We're supposed to bring all the loose strings of our life in place, cut them off if we have to, in order to bring everything in our life into the service of this one great goal, advancing the gospel and taking part in what is going to be this glorious bringing together of all of God's people and an eternal kingdom. That's the kind of thing that Isaiah has in mind as he writes the 66th chapter, the conclusion of his magisterial book. This final chapter is a panoramic look at what's coming, eternal glory. It's a grand vision of the future for God's people. And it's the kind of chapter that calls us to live a life of sustained focus on one great goal. And so as we walk through chapter 66 tonight, I want us to see that what this chapter does is shows us three ways to bring our life into conformity of, of God's great goal for our lives. We need to hear God's word, hope in God's promise, and herald God's glory. So let's take those three headings one at a time as we go through this chapter. The first thing the chapter calls us to do to live our life for God's great purpose is to hear God's word. I say hear God's word. You might say, maybe you should say obey. Are you just trying to put together a little alliteration? No, hear is the word that's used in the scripture because hear in the Bible and obey are synonymous. If you didn't hear something and then obey it, you didn't really hear it. That's what this text calls us, to, it's to hear the word of God. In fact, as we walk through the first six verses, we see that there are two different responses to the word of God. I want to contrast those for us as we walk through. Look at verse number one. Here's where this vision begins. <clears throat> we read this, Thus says Yahweh, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares Yahweh. First thing that we see in this text is that if we're going to live a life for God, the first thing we need to do is deal with the real God. And this text announced with thundering authority that the real God is an incomprehensible God. He's beyond us. We're not going to find him out through rationality, through our own cognition. This God is infinite and far above anything we could ever think, hope, or imagine. This is an infinite and incomprehensible God. The only way that we could access this God is revelation. He has to reveal himself to us, and that's what he does in his word. And in fact, that's the only person who can have a relationship with him. Look at what he says in verse 2. And this incomprehensible sovereign God says, and this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. The only person who can have relationship with the real God is the one who receives the revelation, who receives the word of God. And we're told here exactly how we are to receive it. We could say in a word, we're to tremble at God's word. That's the first response. The f- response that God calls for is that we tremble at God's word. In fact, there's a couple other adjectives here we could just note quickly. I will look to this one who is humble and contrite in spirit. It's an interesting little turn of phrase. Contrite literally is a word that means blamed or crippled. It's used in 2 Samuel in chapter 4 and chapter 9 to refer to this one of Saul, King Saul's sons named Mephibosheth. This is a tongue twister in itself. The most amazing thing about writing this sermon was that my Microsoft Word processor accepted Mephibosheth as a good spelling. Who knew? 
Mephibosheth is said to have been lamed in both feet so that he could not walk. And so when there was instruction coming upon the house of Saul, someone had to pick him up and carry him out. And now God comes and says, this is the one that I'm going to look to, the one who is crippled in spirit. It's not someone who's weak and you can't do anything. It's someone who recognizes that before the living God of the universe, I'm entirely insufficient to do anything. Apart from God, I can do nothing. Before him, I have sinned. I'm broken under my sin. I'm aware of my limitations. And I've got empty hands and I want to receive God at his word. That's the person that God's going to speak to. That's the person that can have relationship with the real God. And he says here that this person is characterized by trembling at my word. Tremble is a word that means fear. It's used throughout the Bible, this Hebrew word, in context in which people are going into battle and they're terrified that they're going to die. And then God picks that word up and says, the person who responds like that at hearing my word, who trembles like he's going into battle when he hears the word of the Lord, that's the person that God will enter into relationship with. Let me just park the car for a second and just ask, when you hear in the scriptures that God requires his people to be characterized by fear, that the fear of the Lord is a requirement to have relationship with God, What's your first response to that? I think sometimes because it's such a foreign concept, one of our first responses is to brush that aside and say, well, it says fear, but it doesn't mean fear. It means respect. Well, does it? There are words for respect, and the Bible does talk about respect, but the Bible doesn't call us just to respect God. It says that we're to fear Him, to tremble like we're going into battle and afraid we're going to die. When God says fear, he's not confused. He hasn't misspoken. He wants us to be afraid. But why? And in what sense? Why does God use the word fear? Why does he want us to tremble? I think that he understands human nature and that he has picked up intentionally the perfect emotion to describe an all-encompassing response to God and his word. Here's what I mean. Is there any more all-embracing emotion than fear? You imagine the time in your life when you were most terribly afraid. You probably can remember it fairly vividly because these kinds of things stick in our memory. And probably what you remember is that in that moment, you couldn't think of anything else. You couldn't do anything else. No one was going to bother you with what you were going to do next Thursday. All you could think about was the thing that had brought this fear into your life and it consumed you. That's why God says that we're to fear him. He wants our response to him to be all-consuming, to absorb us, to own us, for us to be frozen and live a life that's entirely compelled by our understanding of who God is. That's what it means to fear God, to live a life of consuming awe. And this is the person that God says, I'll enter into relationship with this person. But there's a contrast in this text. There's another way to respond to God, and that's not with trembling, but by turning away. And God says this in verse 3. In verse 3 we read, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. 
He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. They have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. You notice that throughout this these two verses, God's speaking to people who have the external forms of worship. In fact, they have, I mean, they got a long list of the kinds of external worship that they perform. And this isn't dreary, ho-hum kind of worship. I mean, when you are giving these kinds of offerings, these are serious sacrifices. You could maybe modernize this and say these are the kinds of people who had ecstatic worship experience. I mean, they were really going hard. And yet, God says that all of the external things they were doing, all of, all of what they did when they came to have a worship experience in my house, all of it, in God's eyes, was like murder. He, he, he says, I don't, I don't like this. I don't choose this. And we saw in Isaiah chapter 1, God says, in fact, my soul hates this. Because, in verse 4, when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, you didn't listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Because when they walked out of the house of the Lord, they lived in ways that God had commanded them not to, and they didn't live in the ways that God had commanded them to. I wonder, you know, there's two ways you could understand this kind of a person that God describes in the Bible. One way you could understand this person is someone who, I mean, knows that they're not living according to God's word and they are conforming to a social expectation when they go into congregational worship. That's possible. There's another way to understand this, and that is a person who perhaps even genuinely thinks that they're offering service to the Lord, but when they go out, they assimilate to the surrounding culture. And so they adopt lifestyles, they adopt behaviors, they adopt beliefs that the Bible explicitly prohibits. Thinking that they're rendering service to God, and yet God says, it's not what I want. I don't just want exuberant external forms. I want trembling at my word. I want a lamed, crippled spirit that surrenders entirely to me. Now, if you are tracking with the the twofold response here. One is trembling, one is turning away. One of the things you might wonder is, is God basically characterizing a true worshiper as someone who's just like kind of limp fish? Whatever the Bible says, I have to do it. Even some, Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. And I'm scared too, so I'm like, Woo, you got the heebie-jeebies all the time. If that's the way that you're kind of interpreting the worshiper in these verses, then five and six are in the text to cure that misconception. There's a lot of theology packed into verses 5 and 6, I just want to draw out one clear implication of these verses that will help us understand what a true worshiper looks like. Verse 5, look at it. In your Bibles it says, Hear the word of Yahweh, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let Yahweh be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. See what's happening is that those worshipers who, outside of the house of the Lord, don't, don't abide by all that is written in the text of Scripture, don't get along entirely perfectly well with those who do. And so there's a little bit of animosity. 
But look at the particular way that those who cast out those who tremble at God's word respond to them. They say, let Yahweh be glorified that we may see your joy. In other words, they're mocking people who tremble at God's word because the people who tremble at God's word find their joy, find their delight, find their satisfaction in the word of God. In, in the behaviors that God calls righteous, in the lifestyles that God says please him. And the people who, who don't tremble at God's word say, that's so stupid, or that's crazy. Yeah, let's see, let's see how happy you can be trembling and following God's word and surrendering your whole life and living in consuming awe of him. Do you notice what, what's happening here is that God's giving us two sides of the coin of what a worshiper looks like. On the one side of the coin, we find that he's trembling at God's word. He's, he's, he fears God. He's totally consumed with him. And on the other side of that coin, we find that his soul is entirely satisfied, that he's filled with joy, a joy that abides through circumstances that arise in his life. What a marvelous picture God is painting for us here. This is what someone who trembles at God's word will experience. Deep, lasting, abiding joy in the God who has entered his life and filled him. This is the first thing that we have to do in order to live a life fixated on the one goal that God's given us. We've got to hear God's word. We have to respond to it with trembling. We have to respond to God's word in such a way that it fills us with awe and joy and delight and sustains and nourishes and motivates us. We have to hear God's word. But there's a second thing that this text tells us that we need to do is not only hear God's word, but we also need to hope in God's promises. And in fact, in verses 7 through 17, we see there are really three promises to sustain us in this text. So the first thing I want you to see is in verse 7, we find a promise of a Messiah that's meant to motivate us in personal living. Verse 7 says, Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. And who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth children. And you read that and say, what in the world is happening? But you can definitely see at least one thing in this text is that this is an unprecedented kind of birth that's being described. Who has seen anything like this? There's never been anything like this before. This is one of the first times we run into in this text a verse that intersects with all kinds of New Testament theology. There, this, this picture is picked up by the New Testament authors and used in a number of ways. But one particularly clear way that I want to draw your attention to this evening is in Revelation in chapter 12 where the Apostle John quotes this verse and says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who's that? That's, that's the Messiah. That's the Psalm 2 Messiah, God's son, who's been anointed to rule the nations. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for God. This is a promise that God is supernaturally going to cause his people Israel to give birth to the Messiah and that he will rule and reign over the nations. And then he follows that up in verse 9 by saying, Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says Yahweh? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? In other words, I've started this whole thing. I'm going to finish it. 
You know, one of the ways that you'd apply this to your life is you would look at a text like this that is promising that the Messiah is not only going to be born, but is going to finish the work he started and is going to bring all of his people into an everlasting kingdom. Is you believe that that's going to happen and you live in light of it. See, what this text is saying is just as God has promises in the book of Isaiah and other Old Testament texts that speak of a suffering Messiah who's going to come and die for his people, and that happened. So also, the prophecies that speak of that Messiah coming again to bring all people into judgment and to bring a new heavens and a new earth, that will also happen. And we're supposed to keep this fixed in our mind, to live with absolute, sustained attention on the reality that Jesus is coming again with his kingdom. Live in such a way that our life will count for it. There's a second promise in this text, and that is verses 10 through 14, that those who attach themselves to the Messiah and then live as part of his people will be comforted by him. Let me just read through these texts and we'll just point something out. Verse 10 says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her and joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream will come to her, and you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of Yahweh shall be known to his servants." speaking about the kingdom that the Messiah that was just prophesied is going to bring. All of the promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to all, all of the people of Israel that we find replete through the Psalms are going to come to pass when Messiah comes again and establishes his kingdom. And what we don't get in this text is we don't get all of the chronological details of how exactly that's going to happen. That's one of the reasons we're given the book of Revelation, which parses out where in the flow of redemptive history we stand at this moment. In Revelation, we find that Messiah is going to come and establish a thousand-year kingdom upon the earth before he comes in another judgment and then establishes a new heavens and new earth where his people will live with him forever. And this text is just saying, that's going to happen. It's going to happen. So then live a life that makes sense in light of it. You know, one of the ways that you do that is that you invest your life in the church. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, picks up the language in this text and says that when you become a Christian, you get a foretaste of the glory that's coming when you come into the church, which functions like Mount Zion in your earthly life. And as you invest your life in the church and you invest yourself in relationships in the church and serving the church and advancing the mission of the church, which is to extend the gospel to the nations you find yourself increasingly becoming the kind of person that God called you to be in the first section, a person who's fixated on the coming glory, who trembles at his word, and who finds sustaining joy in living according to the life God gave him to live. There's a third promise in this text. It's a promise Messiah is going to come, that Messiah is going to build a kingdom and comfort all of his people, and thirdly, there's a promise that he's also going to judge the wicked. You see that in verse 15. You look in your Bibles at verse 15. We read this, for behold, Yahweh will come in fire 
and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And by fire Yahweh will enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by Yahweh will be many. just really one main thing I want you to see in this text. And that is the very first word. There's this, these two verses are this, this massive, incredible, overwhelming, terrifying picture of judgment. And they all begin with one key word, one connecting conjunction for or because. You see what, what's happening here? God is saying that what came before the comfort, this incredible peace like a river, being entirely comforted and satisfied and satiated in God's presence with God's people forever. All of that that's coming for God's people is coming because in the judgment God will judge the wicked. In other words, there can be no peace without a judgment. There can be no righteousness without a judgment. I know that Naturally, for so many of us, judgment is perhaps the most unsavory doctrine in the Bible. But Scripture wants us to begin to see that the judgment of God not only is necessary because of the nature of God, because God being a holy God cannot tolerate evil in His presence. Furthermore, judgment is meant to be a comfort to the one who trembles at God's Word. You see, without a final judgment, there will never be a day when wrongs will be righted. Suppose, just imagine a world in which there is no judgment. What would that mean? What, what would the final outcome of your life look like? If there's no final judgment, then there are no rights for anything that's ever been done wrong in the world. Your life exists in order to, what, maybe raise some children? So that when you die, they'll be in a place where they could then raise some children? And then when they die, their kids will be in a place where they could then raise some children. And then they keep doing this and doing this and doing this until the inevitable happens. What scientists tell us is that the sun is going to implode and then all of human history will just be gone and there'll be no one there to remember it. It'll be as though it never even happened. If there's no final judgment, then, then every human life is like that little kid's song. My name is Jan Janssen, I come from Wisconsin, I work in a lumber mill there. When people see me on the street, they ask me, oh, how's it go? I can't remember the last line. People see me on the street, they ask me my name, and I say, my name is Jan Janssen, I come from Wisconsin, and it just goes round and round and round and round and round. That's your life. That's it. That's all there is to you. In the final analysis, everything that you ever do, everything you ever dreamed, everything you ever wanted is pointless. And you have to conclude that. And the only way that you can live your life is you ignore the outcome of your worldview. That's what a world without a final judgment is. But the Bible says that there is going to be a final judgment wherein the God of the universe who will not willy-nilly knock over the things that he has built like a toddler throwing a temper tantrum, but in perfect righteousness and measured patience and exacting justice will render to each according to his due. Except those who hide themselves in his son who won't receive their due but will receive mercy. In that day, every wrong will be righted. Either 
in the cross wherein Christ pays for all the sins of His people or we'll pay for them ourselves. And it's because there will be a final judgment that we can look forward to the reality that there will be an everlasting kingdom where peace flows like a river. It's only through God's perfect judgment that we get to Canaan's promised shores. These promises that a Messiah is coming, he's going to bring a kingdom and he's going to get us there by bringing us through the judgment because he endured it for us on the cross are meant to sustain us in this life so that we can live a life fixated on this one goal, living a life that makes sense in light of eternity. There's a third thing we need to do to live this focused life, not just hear God's word, not just hoping God's promise, but also herald God's glory. This text has all been going somewhere to a climax, and it's in verses 18 through 24. Let me just read a couple verses here, beginning in verse 18. 18 through verse 21, I want you to see that these, this text calls us to action. It calls us to herald God's glory. Let me read them for you, and then we'll work through it together. Verse 18 says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, to Lut, who draw the boat to Baal, to Yavan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to Yahweh. They'll come on horses and chariots and litters and mules to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says Yahweh. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of Yahweh, and some of them I'll even take his priests and Levites, says Yahweh. What's happening here? Let me just walk through the text with you. And we'll see just a couple signals here. Of what's, what's going on? Verse 18. God says, there's a time coming when I'm going to gather my people from all the nations and from all tongues. That's all languages. And they'll come and they'll see my glory. And I'm going to set a sign among them. Okay, so there's some kind of sign that is drawing people to see God's glory. This sign is revealing God's glory. So people from all nations and all languages are coming to see this glorious sign that's revealing God's glory. And then God's going to send out people from among those who come to go back and get more. Go to even farther lands. Go to Tarshish, that's Spain, to the west. Pool and Lud to the north. To Tubal and Yavan to the south. To the coastlands in the farthest flung parts on the other side of the globe. Go to the entire globe and tell people about this sign revealing God's glory. And then those who have not heard my fame and have not seen my glory, they'll see it because of this sign. Because my people are declaring my glory among the nations, verse 20, and then they're going to bring your brothers, that is people who have become brothers because they belong to the people of the Lord now, they're going to come from all nations as an offering, particularly as a grain offering to the Lord. They're going to use mules, they'll use all, every form of transportation possible, they'll use every available technology, they'll avail themselves of all things at their disposal to get to Yahweh, to come see this sign, to, to get it to the world, and then the world will hear it and some will believe and come worship Yahweh. What's happening here? I think you can see the general message is that God wants His people to go tell the world about Him, but there's something even more particular in the text. Notice in verse 19, God says, I'll set a sign among them. That sign's going to go to these far-flung nations, and those nations, right in the middle of verse 19, it says, those are the nations who have not heard or seen. 
a sign that will go to the people who have not heard or seen. I think even particularly in the original language, the, the verbal structure here is striking. There is a massively important text in the middle of Isaiah's book that this is hearkening back to and saying, remember what I told you about a few chapters ago? It's coming to full fruition now. And that text is Isaiah 52. So I want to take you on a little tour here. Go to Isaiah 52 and look at verse 13. This Isaiah 53 is this famous passage that so clearly describes the suffering and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But chapter 53 really begins three verses earlier at the end of chapter 52. This section begins in chapter 52, verse 13, where we read this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. That's the language that describes Yahweh himself or the Lord on his throne in Isaiah 6. It's divine status that the servant is going to obtain. Verse 14 says, Just as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of all the children of mankind. So this, you go, this incredible, incredible tr- transition from divine glory, the servant's going to be divinely exalted, to the next verse, he's going to be so mutilated you won't even be able to tell that he's human. What? And then verse 15 concludes this little paragraph by saying, And so he'll sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths of him, because that which has not been told to them they'll see, and that which they have not heard they'll understand. So this, this is a summary of the work that the servant is going to do that is then explained in Isaiah 53. It's going to be death and resurrection. And that basically is summarized that the servant is going to be so marred that he doesn't even look human and then through that suffering he'll be exalted to divine status. Then verse 15 says the message about this servant will go to people who don't know anything about him yet and when they hear about it, their eyes will be open and they'll be astonished. They'll shut their mouths in awe and they'll want to worship this servant. What's happening here? This is the This is the message of the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ going to the nations and when the nations hear it, they believe it. They're astonished. They become worshipers. They tremble at this word. It consumes them. It changes them. In fact, this text is picked up by the Apostle Paul. So I told you this was a mini-guided tour. So now go to the New Testament. Romans in chapter 15. Romans in chapter 15. I want to show you beginning in verse 14. Some people believe, many believe that Romans 15, Romans, the main point of the letter, was not just a doctrinal treatise, but a a missionary letter. That is, he was trying to gain financial support from the church in Rome in order to continue his mission of evangelizing the nations, particularly to get to Spain. Whether that is accurate understanding of the purpose of the book of Romans, we could debate later. But verse this, this paragraph might get you on that track. I want to read a few verses for you. Now, Paul's going to quote the verse we just read at the end of this section, verse 21, but we've got to run up to it in order to really get it. Verse 14, Paul's writing to the Romans and says, I myself am satisfied about you, brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with knowledge and able to instruct one another. Whoa, I'm in the wrong. Yes. Yeah, verse 15, sorry. Confused myself because I read this in my other Bible before I came here. 
Verse 15, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that this offering, that's the language that was used in Isaiah 66, the nations who believe in the sign are going to be an offering so the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elixirium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." And you ask, is Paul quoting from Isaiah 52 or Isaiah 66? I think the answer might be yes. There's this trail that blazes right through the Scripture that the Messiah is going to come. He's going to do this unimaginable work that then is going to be stand as a sign. And God's going to send messengers around the world who will tell of this sign that reveals God's glory. And some will hear it. And their eyes will be opened. And they'll become obedient and become worshipers. And Paul even says that they're going to become an offering, a grain offering. I I wonder if maybe there's a reason why Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 37 says the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest that he might send workers. Because God has a people in every language and every people group around the world who are going to see the glory of his Messiah and become worshipers. And they're going to get, come to him trembling in awe of him because of the word that they've heard. Let's go back to Isaiah 66 and maybe just summarize some of the things that we've seen in this, in this passage. What this text is telling us is that this laser focus that we're supposed to have to live in light of eternity is we are supposed to tremble at God's word, believe his promises, and get to work. And the work that God has for us to do in this life is to be part of this mission to herald the glory of God to all the nations because God has a people in every ethnic group around the globe who he elected before the foundation of the world who when they hear the gospel, their eyes will be opened. They will see their Savior. They'll hear the voice of their good shepherd and they'll come to him. And God wants us to be a part of that so he calls us to go, to tell people the sign, to lift up the reality that Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, has been crucified and resurrected for salvation and now forgiveness is offered to all who call upon Jesus. This is what we do. This is Christian life. And we're supposed to have a laser focus, cutting off every loose end that would keep us from living a life that makes sense in light of eternity. Just to round things off in Isaiah 66 so that we get the beginning, we tremble because of eternity. He ends by giving us a picture of what that eternity is going to be in verse 22. He says, here's where we're going. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth that shall remain before me, says Yahweh. And then in verse 23, he says, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, that is just all the time. There's one new moon and then guess what? There's another There's a Sabbath, and then there's the Sabbath. So all the time, all flesh shall come and worship before me, says Yahweh. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. We're supposed to have laser focus and live all of our life in light of that. 
But this text, I'd be remiss if I didn't read the last verse, it doesn't end with the new heavens and the new earth and the spectacular glory awaiting God's people. It actually ends with something else. Verse 24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. He ends by reminding us that judgment is a reality. First, in our own hearts for our own evil. And when we come to Jesus Christ empty-handed and take hold of Him, He washes away our sins and makes them white as snow and then enables us to go tell other people about the reality that judgment is coming. And God has given us His Savior. He's given us His Son. One of the only people bold enough to pick up this text and use it is Jesus Himself. And He uses it repeatedly, does He not? Mark in chapter 9, he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, it's better to rip it out and throw it away than to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die. In other words, Isaiah, Jesus, New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul want us to live with the reality in mind that human life has a certain gravitas to it. Our life is not just my name is Jan Janssen and goes around in a circle and I do my career in order for my kids to do their career. That's not what God made us for. God made us for this. He made us for everlasting glory. He made us to be partners in extending His gospel to the nation so all of His elect could hear of His Son. He made us to live with laser focus about this reality. And sometimes in this world, our minds feel a little bit like an internet browser with 17 different tabs open, alerts flashing, music in the background coming from somewhere. I don't, I don't know. But God gives us His Word elevate our minds, clear our thoughts, and show us that God made us for something better. He made us for glory, the glory of His Son. Let's pray to Him together. Father, we're so thankful for this reminder from Your Word that You have given us an incredible salvation. Not only do we get to enjoy this salvation together with others who know You, but we get to tell other people about it. Lord, we pray that this week, that this church, that we ourselves, we get to be part of sharing the news of Jesus with people who have not yet heard of him. Lord, we pray for, I think especially today on a, a day when we're lifting up persecuted church around the world, Lord, we pray that you would sustain your churches. We pray for George and for Michael and their work in India. We pray for Manful and the church in, there in India that you would sustain the work, that more would hear of Christ, that you would be greatly glorified, that you'd sustain your people through the sufferings that they endure, and that God would be glorified because of their work. Father, we now pray that as we sing that you would be, that you'd open our eyes afresh to behold your glory and to live lives that make sense in light of eternity. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.